0: Welcome to The Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, April 14th. Quarterfinals now officially set in Monte Carlo. The year's first ATP Masters 1000 event happening on clay continues to deliver some fantastic tennis. Though I will say Thursday's results relatively stable in the grand scheme of things. Only one surprise winner on the day. That title belonging to Grigor Dimitrov, in my opinion, who knocks off number four seed Casper 6-3, 7-5. Now Grigor has a track record of success in Monte Carlo. I will also argue on today's show that he's been pretty solid on the clay courts throughout the course of his career, despite perhaps being better known for his success on the hard court, and I suppose maybe anecdotally on the grass courts as well. Outside of that surprise results, some of the top seeds look to be hitting their stride here as we reach the back half of Monte Carlo. Alex Zverev, Stefano Tsitsipas earned straight set wins once again. Zverev particularly impressive in a 6-2, 7-5 victory over Pablo. Kareno Busta. I actually thought Tsitsipas got stretched physically in his match against Laszlo Jur and that he was able to survive is a testament to his prowess on clay. I want to talk about both of those guys today, your top two seeds remaining in the draw. Of course, perhaps your most dramatic match of the day, the two three-setters we saw belong to Yannick Sinner, who knocked out Andre Rublev in three sets. Diego Schwartzman, your runner-up for the most dramatic award. He comes back from a set deficit to knock off Lorenzo Musetti. In three, Sinner gets better and better. Every time I see him play, maybe the most quiet 19-2 start to a season we've ever seen. I want to talk about the mechanics of Sinners' improvement. What allowed him to get through Andre Rublev today? Of course, we'll talk about the fantastic tennis of Taylor Fritz. He's into another Masters 1000 quarterfinal, straight-set victory for him over Sebastian Corda. May not have been the most aesthetically pleasing match. Nevertheless, another sign of an ascending Taylor Fritz with his quarterfinal appearance here on the clay in Monte Carlo. I want to talk about his success on today's show. I'm going to run through them all, folks. Eight round of 16 matches. That is not too big a palette for me to have taken the time to have watched a little bit of everything, be able to offer some comments to all of you so that you feel informed going into championship weekend in Monte Carlo. Of course, the reason we're able to do this day in, day out here on this mini break podcast feed is because of the support we get from all of you. And if you're looking for information on things happening at other levels in the tennis world, we've got you covered here at Crack Rackets. We're covering all things college tennis on our Great Shot podcast feed as well as on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel. You can check out our episodes of the deciding point where we recap all the Division I men's and women's action. Tuesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Thursday, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Of course, you can watch our broadcast of things happening in the college tennis world on Fridays and Sundays. This Friday is our final SEC cross-court cast. We will be covering all the action starting at noon. That carries all the way through our last match, I believe, at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. To follow uh, all of those broadcasters, tune in uh, to the links on the team websites. Of course, on Sunday we've got another Big Ten broadcast for all of you as we reach the home stretch of this 2022 college tennis season. You can follow all of Sunday's action live on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel. Of course, Uh, as always, I have to give a huge shout out to our friends at Tennis Point as well for their continued support of our efforts here on the mini break podcast feed. You all know the deal; you've earned that new equipment to boost the finer features of your tennis game. You can find it all at the best prices on our uh, favorite website, tennis-point.com. Of course, you use our promo code CR15 on checkout. Not only will you let them know we sent you there, you'll get 15% off all orders, free two-day shipping on all orders, exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. It's tennis-point.com. Simple, not the spelling, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. And again, you've earned it, folks. As winter turns to spring, make sure you look your best out on the court, tennis-point.com. That promo code is CR15. With that said, let's talk about Thursday's round of 16 action in Monte Carlo. I want to start with Yannick Sinner. And I know I talked about him a bit yesterday, but the Carlo Sinner... Uh, Carlos Center. The Carlos Alcaraz-Yannick Sinner Hey, Great Shot debate is a th- one I think we're going to be having for the majority of the next decade, if not further. I think there are going to be firm camps that emerge, and Gil Gross and I have already staked our claims. I'm going to ride Team Sinner. He's going to ride Team Alcaraz. I think the argument for Carlos Alcaraz made itself over the past month and a half of play. We all saw what he did during the Sunshine Swing, pushing Rafa to the brink in brutal conditions and ultimately winning the Miami Open. I don't think any of us are deterred by his first-round loss to Sebastian Corda, who, of course, reached the round of 16 with his victory over Alcaraz and is one of the many young promising talents on tour. But as I alluded to in my intro, Yannick Sinner has taken... A step forward this season and that leap forward has been clouded by some injury issues. He's been forced to retire from a couple of matches as well. Nevertheless, you look for Yannick Sinner again on the season here in 2022. Simply put, he has been spectacular. You look for Sinner now nineteen and three overall. Excuse me, I think I said nineteen and two. Nineteen and three overall here during the twenty twenty-two season. His losses straight sets to Stefano Tsitsipas at, in the Australian Open quarterfinals now again straight sets not the best and if you watch that match it wasn't his finals performance nevertheless another slam quarterfinal under the belt for the 20 year uh, 20 year old do you look for him in Dubai you know he loses to Hubi hercos in straight sets quarterfinals there again. Tough loss, but to a top 10 player, not a bad loss. You look for him. Has to withdraw in losses in both Indian Wells and Miami. Now, started his match against Francisco Serendolo. So, technically, to some, that counts as a loss. That's why I said 19-2 and two at the start. 19-2. and two. He's 20 freaking years old. Doesn't turn 21 until mid August. He's already 19 and 2. You look for him over his last 52 weeks. Yannick Sinner, 53 and 19 overall. That's a 74% win percentage. He's holding serve. 82.4% of the time, which is a career high for him and a top 25 number. He's breaking serve 28.1% of the time, which is not a career high for him, but nevertheless is a top 25 number. You look for Yannick Sinner here in 2022. He is one of just eight players to rank top 20 in both hold and break percentage. And guess what? When you're 19-3, and you're going to be one of the best eight players in the world. You want to go by the points accumulated? I think that's fair as well. Yannick Sinner right now, 10th in the points race towards the year-end finals. We know with Yannick Sinner he has the power to hang at the highest levels of the atp tour you watch him bash forehands from the baseline when he has time or drive through his backhand cross court he's one of those few players who not only can snap a winner down the line with his backhand changing directions but can straight up just get the ball by beat you to the spot cross court even if it's amid a neutral rally as well if he has enough time yannick sinner no one has ever doubted his firepower I don't think anyone's ever doubted him as a volleyer either. Maybe you don't think of him as a servant volleyer. You don't think of him as the most aggressive player in terms of trying to move forward. But foundationally and fundamentally, Yannick Sinner is exceptional not only at getting, knowing when to move forward, but you know, executing on the first volley. And half of the battle in your first volley is putting that first volley in play. Yannick Sinner pretty much always puts that first volley in play. He knows the direction to go with that ball. Sure, like anyone, he'll leave a first volley, you know, half volley or drop volley short and give opponent a second chance at a pass. But I would say 80% of the time, Yannick Sinner does enough damage with that first volley that he's finishing the point, putting the ball away. He's got such a complete game and you know, mentally he's so steady, but as we've alluded to over the past few months and since his loss to Francis Tiafo in Vienna at the end of last season, there's been a fire to center on the court. He's playing with more energy, playing with more outward passion and enthusiasm. I'm not saying I ever doubted his passion for the sport, his desire to become a winner, but channeling that in a positive manner with your outwards emotions and engaging the crowd and getting them involved. I mean, it was a ruckus crowd for him in his five, seven, six. 163 victory over Andre Rublev. And what was so impressive for me today for Yannick Sinner wasn't the power he displayed. It was a, his ability to not only extend the points physically, but also open up angles for himself, open up space for himself to attack, particularly on a clay court, which is always going to be more difficult to hold, uh, to swing through. You look for Yannick Sinner throughout the course of this match, only made 56% of his serves and yet won 71% of his first serve points, 51% of his second serve points. You look at the rally analysis in this match. He was plus 22 on Rublev in zero to four shot rallies. He won 22 more zero to four shot rallies than Andre Rublev did in this match. He was so effective on the deuce side, hitting the slice serve out wide, then hitting either a forehand or a backhand, depending on where Rublev took his return, though it didn't matter to the open space on the ad side of the court. And, you know, Rublev physically, you could tell, was wearing down as this match progressed and the trainer had to come out. And, you know, of course you add those disclaimers and looking at a number as big as plus 22 for Sinner. At the same time, his combinations were efficient. When the rallies did get extended, five plus shots. You know, Sinner played Ruble well, after losing out in the first set, and in particular in the first set, Yannick Sinner's on the run forehand was just... Producing all sorts of unforced errors. He was shanking left, shanking long. Just, you know, again, wasn't finding good balance in striking that forehand on the run. And of course, it's so difficult to hit that on the run forehand against Rublev because generally he's hitting a forehand to that side of the court. And that ball is so heavy as is. If you don't time it perfectly, even at neutral, you're going to be in trouble. Imagine trying to deal with Rublev's forehand on clay while hitting it on the run. And yet Sinner found his range in set number two. In set number three, he did such an exceptional job on the backhand wing all match long, and you look for Sinner, 40 winners against 43 unforced errors, considering how decisive he was in his service games, considering how, you know, ragged he was running in the first set, and he was down a break early in that first set, and breaks back for five all in the first, although it was a sloppier service game for Rublev, although... You know, to Sinner's credit, he extended rallies a couple of times and was down 30 love in the game uh, before landing a couple of deep returns and just taking control of some points. I thought what Yannick Sinner did so well in this match was absorb the first blow. Of Andre Rublev matched his physicality and even exceeded down the home stretch when Rublev began to wear down. But more importantly, he broke Rublev's rhythm. He got him extended into the outer thirds of the court. He got Rublev thinking and, you know, forcing the issue. And I don't think Andre Rublev played particularly well in this match 19 winners against 31 unforced errors. You know, he was 12 of 35 on second serve points. But that's a credit because anytime Yannick Sinner got a look at a second serve, he pounced, he capitalized, he got aggressive on his return. He got Rublev stretched into the outer third of the court. He created space for himself, and then he attacked, and again, it's how he's going about creating space. It's not just line drive, you know, bludgeoning the ball through you sorts of tennis. He's creating angle, and you know, again hitting the three-quarter ball, but that much more cross-court to get Rublev extended out towards the alley, and he's doing it off of both wings as well. I thought Yannick Sinner played a very well-rounded match, and again, you look at the stats for Sinner; he's one of eight players to be top 20 in both hold and break percentage this season: 19 and three, 19 and two. However, you want to look at it overall on the year. Now, last season he was not top 25 in hold and break percentage uh, in ATP clay court matches, but you look for him last season he was a top 15 player in terms of break percentage in clay court matches. Yannick Sinner finished 14th with a 29.5 break percentage. You look for Yannick Sinner overall in his career, 23 and 13 overall on clay courts. He's breaking serve 31.2% of the time at the ATP level uh, in his career on clay courts. That number 31.2 would rank good for 10th amongst top 50 players. And again, He's 20 years old, and yet we see the improvements considering how physically worn down he looked in his first round match against Borna Chorch, that he even reached the quarterfinals the way he did, having to go three sets here against Rublev, having to play a really tough straight set match, particularly a really physical 7-5 first set in his second match against Emil Roussevori. It's a testament to the progress we see in y- Yannick Sinner that he's into the quarterfinals here in Monte Carlo. And I mentioned it 10th in the points race, 12th right now in the live rankings. One more victory. He'll jump Carlos Alcaraz, whom he will forever be compared to. Again, it's going to be a really fun rivalry between those two folks. Alcaraz turning 19 this month, Sinner turning 21 in August. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to get fun, folks. Sinner will jump him with one more victory in the quarterfinals. But, of course, coming up next, he's got... And what a brutal stretch this has been for Sinner. a Chorich, round number one. Rusevori, round two. Rublev, now round three. Now he's got Alex Virov in round number four. And I suppose I'll go... I'll I'll match by draw partners here, you and know, I'll talk about the Alex Zverev match. Zverev a straight set victory over Pablo Carreno Busta, uh, 6-2, 7-5 to advance to the quarterfinals. Again, just another successful result for Alex Zverev on the clay. And you know, if you look at the stats for Zverev, clay courts has been where he's had the most successes throughout the course of his career. Now, of course, the most prominent success comes at the U.S. Open, where he made the final in 2020, or the multiple year-end titles. He's won on indoor hard courts. You probably throw those titles into the mix as well, but you look for Alex Zverev in his career, 320 and 144 overall in ATP matches, 69% win percentage. By the way, he is the player most likely to get to that 500-600 win plateau, or uh, I suppose level that only like Thirty players, fifty players in tennis history have reached, and Alex Yaro is already on well on his way to reaching those sorts of numbers, being a top twenty sort of all time wins leader uh, by the end of his career. He's one ninety seven and ninety one on hard courts. It's a sixty eight percent win percentage. He's ninety five and thirty seven on clay. win percentage, you look for him overall in terms of points won, he's the same player on both surfaces, winning 51.9% of his points, now the hold percentage dips a bit on the clay compared to the hard courts, the break percentage as one would expect rises for Zverev, he would be a top 15 player. Uh, by break percentage overall in his career uh, top 10 player by break percentage uh, with that number overall in his career on clay you look for him even more recently obviously he's a top 15 sort of guy and in fact you look for Alex Zverev last season 2021 clay court results Zverev one of just six players to rank top 15 in both hold and break percentage and you can throw Botik Vandesen out of that list because he played only three clay court matches at the ATP level so Zverev was one of five players it was C Tsitsipas, Djokovic, Zverev, Kasparud, and Ilya Ivashka, who did a lot of it at the 250 level and is certainly the outlier amongst the group. Nevertheless, again, that's, you know, Zverev was one of clearly the five best players on clay last season. You look for Zverev, not a coincidence that he made the semifinals of Roland Garros, losing in five sets to Stefano Tsitsipas. And you look for him last season, won the Madrid Masters where he beat Rafa. He beat, uh, you know, then healthier Dominic team. He beats Matteo Berrettini in the final. You look for him throughout the course of his career. Again, has made multiple quarterfinals or further uh, at Roland Garros. Did it in 2019. Did it in 2018. Loses round of 16 to Sinner in 2020, but he's made quarterfinals or further in three of the last four years. He's, you know, won a Madrid title before. He's, you know, uh, I believe won a Rome Masters title uh, before as well. He's done it now na- just about everywhere. On the clay. And you look for him in Monte Carlo. He made a semifinal in Monte Carlo in 2018. Uh, In that match, he ended up losing to Nishi Corey. That's the best result for him in Monte Carlo to date. Now he's in the quarterfinals where he's got a shot against Yannick Sinner. And, you know, again, given how physical of tennis, uh, Sinner has played through his first three matches. Zverev should be the favorite. And his length, I mean, A, when he strikes his first serve with how heavy it is, he just has the opportunity to attack. And when he's attacking with his ground strokes, he does look like one of the five best players in the world. That's when he gets passive or he has to sit behind second serves and he's willing to be six feet behind the baseline, which of course, with his length and size, he can do with some success, but that's not the player he needs to be on the court. He was the aggressor from the start against Karina Busta came up with some ridiculous on the run backhand down the line passing shots as well just the strength he shows from that portion of the court and you know he gets more and more comfortable every time I see him play as a volleyer as well I mean there's a reason you look at the tennis abstract formula uh, tomorrow in the singles forecast Alex Zverev the favorite over Yannick Sinner 67.6 to 32.4 so again they say two-thirds of the time Zverev wins the match you look at the career head-to-head 1-1 overall obviously Sinner beat him at the 2020 French. Open, although if you remember correctly, I believe Zero had a virus or something like that. And so, you know, again, you take that result with a grain of salt. Nevertheless, that's going to be a fun one, folks. Buckle your seatbelt. That's, in my opinion, the best matchup uh, of the quarterfinals. And again, it's next gen versus next gen 2.0. I tweeted this out earlier, and I suppose this is a broader point I can make here. And I apologize for quoting my own Twitter, as some of you may have seen that. Twenty-four of the thirty-two Masters. One- so there have been four Masters. Oh, let me restart there. Leave it in though. West off. Give me the rewind. Rewind sound effect. But leave it in if you don't mind. So. There have been four Masters or uh, Grand Slam events held thus far this season. You've got Australian Open, you've got Indian Wells, you've got Miami, you've now got Monte Carlo. 32 quarterfinal spots available, right? Because there are eight quarterfinal spots in each of those four events. Eight times four, 32. Easy math. Of those 32 quarterfinal spots, 24 of them have been held by players born 1996 or later. Now, of course, the next-gen ATP marketing campaign was started around the 1996s, the Hachinovs, the Chorches, the you know Zerevs and Hercats of the world. That first next-gen finals in Milan, at the time, Heun Chung as well, uh, featured players born 1996. That's why I will forever refer to them as the next-gen ATP campaign, you know, the next-gen crew, even if now at age 25, some of those guys turning 26 this year would no longer be considered pejoratively next gen. They would be considered now gen. And that is the argument I'm trying to make is 24 of 32 spots have been consumed, uh, have been taken up by players born 1996 or later. My friend Oleg S at Anna K forever on Twitter, who I, I mean, I describe as my friend, I should say, I don't actually know Anna K, but I, think it's one of the best twitter accounts you can find on tennis twitter created a chart of the results since the pandemic uh you know titles above the atp 250 level finals above the atp 250 level in every tournament played at the atp tour level since the pandemic began so since the tour resumed in august of 2020 players born in the 1980s that's rafa that's Djokovic. they've won 11 titles uh Players born before 1996 in general have won 15 titles. So again, players born in the 80s have won 11 of the 15 titles. I guess I'll go by decade. Players born in the 80s, they've won 11 titles. Players born 1990 to 1995, think Dominic Team, think Dimitrov, think Ranich's of the world, they've won four titles. Players born 1996 or later a.k.a. players in the next-gen campaign, they've won 24 titles. So again, there have been 39 total events, 24 titles by the next-geners, four titles by the Dimitrovs of the world, 11 titles for Generation Djokovic-Nadal. It's the next-gen's world. 24 of 32 quarterfinal spots this year go to players in the next-gen campaign. 24 of the past 39 titles have gone to players as part of the next-gen campaign. 47 of the 84 finals have been made by players as part of the next-gen campaign. We are in the next-gen era. Now, I'm not trying to exclude what Rafa and Djokovic have done. Because, obviously, again, you look for them. There have been seven Grand Slams played since uh, the pandemic resumed. Six of them have been won by either Djokovic or Nadal. The one exception being Daniil Medvedev at last year's U.S. Open. Or, I suppose, uh, uh, two exceptions. Uh, five of them have been won by Djokovic and Nadal. One of them won by Dominic Thiem at the 2020 U.S. Open. Leave that in, but let's be clear. I corrected myself there. So 5 it's a 5-2 split, right? But it's really 5-1-1 split. I understand To some tennis fans, perhaps many of you listeners until the next gen is consistently winning grand slams, until we have multiple of those guys who are multiple time slam finalists, maybe even a big group of them with a, a title, if not multiple titles as well. Because you look at the next gen campaign, the only player who's made multiple slam finals is Daniil Medvedev on the hard courts. Now, Zverev's made a US Open final. Pass has made a French Open final. Berrettini's made a Wimbledon final. I understand all of these different things. And obviously, you have Dominic team winning the 2020 U.S. Open and making multiple French Open finals as well. I understand all of that. At the same time, tennis, as we talk so frequently, if you have ever complained that the tennis calendar is too long, that, you know, again, all these events compile, well, the reason the tennis season is so long is because we are playing all of these events. And if you're just going to focus on the Grand Slams, you are doing a disservice to the tennis that happens the other 40 weeks of the season. And to be frank, the next gen dominates. The ne- dominates is too strong of a word. The next gen is the majority in the rest of the events that are played throughout the seasons. Again, I can read the stats for you. I think it's become pretty clear. You look of all the events, 39 of them played since August 2020. 24 titles belong to players born 1996 or later. Only four of them belong to players born 1990 to 1995. Those players who are now what? If you're born 1995, I can tell you I'm 26. I turned 27 later this season. The players who are, you know, that five-year range, 26 to 31, which I think many would consider the prime of a career right now, they've won four of the last 39 titles. 1996 or later, they've won 24. That is a six-fold increase, folks. 600% more winning from the next geners than the lost geners. Yes, I understand. It's Djokovic, Nadal, still very much players to beat at the Grand Slam. And if you want to say it's the next gen era plus Djokovic and Nadal, I can't. I can't knock you for that. The Big Three era. That's done. Federer respectfully, and I know he's injured, not a part of the equation week in, week out. Andy Murray still fighting his tail off, but that big four era is done as well. It's now the next-gen era, and I think the first three chapters, five chapters of the next-gen era will be a discussion of how difficult it was for so many of these players to overcome two of the three greatest players of all time in Nadal and Djokovic. Certainly that is a major part of the next gen era storybook. At the same time, it is the next gen era. The numbers say it. The eye test says it. This Monte Carlo run says it. I believe there have been more titles won by players born. And yeah, this is from Oleg as well. Shout out to, uh, for the stats at Anna K forever. Um, There have been more players who have won titles born 2,000 or later than there have been born 1990 to 1995. The Cordas of the world, the Alcarazes of the world, the Sinners of the world, the Felixes of the world, they're all coming as well. The next-gen era is upon us, and that makes for a really exciting time right now, in my opinion, as tennis fans, because I think viscerally, you can feel that generational shift, and I know it's we're all resisting it, because we're all so accustomed now to a decade-plus. It's Federer, it's Djokovic, it's Nadal. We'll figure out the rest later. Yeah, Djokovic, Nadal, at the biggest events, it's those two, and we have to figure out who else is in the mix. But that's where we're at, at the slams. Everywhere else, the next-gen era is officially upon us. With that said, I apologize uh, for the tangent, as I am prone to do from time to time here on this mini-break podcast. Let's get back to the action happening in Monte Carlo, of course. By the way, if you have any thoughts, is the next-gen era upon us? Is it not upon us? What do you need to see to be fully convinced? Maybe it is another player winning a slam title. Maybe it's someone consolidating and winning multiple slam titles. I can understand all of those lines of thoughts. I'm not gonna knock you, I just wanna hear it. And so, of course, at A.L. Gruskin, probably the easiest way uh, to reach out to me. Honestly, I probably check that more than I check my text. So uh, feel free to, or of course, leave a comment in the comment section uh, on Apple, Spotify, wherever it is you listen to this podcast. With that said, let's get back to Monte Carlo. Let's talk about uh, Taylor Fritz. Who, again, another round of uh, another round of sixteen victory for him at a Masters one thousand event. You look for Taylor Fritz since having knee surgery after last year's French Open. Forty-one and eighteen overall in matches. Forty-one and eighteen. Overall, he's winning 69% of his matches, folks. He's up to number 13 in the rankings. That's a uh, live rankings and current rankings. That's a career high. One more victory for him, and Fritz will surpass Yannick Sinner uh, if, assuming Sinner loses, for 12th in the live rankings, a new career high. And again, 41 and 18. It's not some cupcake schedule of results. He hasn't just been racking up, you know, summer 250 victories. Certainly, to go to Saint Petersburg and make a final there, that was a 250 result. But even there. He beats Rusevori, he beats Tommy Paul, gets knocked out in three sets by Marin Cilic. You know, a semifinal in Los Cabos where he's knocked out by Cam Nori of all people. Those are like the big 250 runs. Everything else has happened at a significant event. Indian Wells semifinals last year. Beats Zverev, beats Sinner, beats Berrettini. Paris Masters quarterfinals beats Rublev, beats Cam Nori. Australian Open Round of 16 beats Tiafo, beats Roberto Bautista Good. Your Indian Wells freaking champion beats Diemenauer, Kesmenovich, Rublev, Rafa, albeit an injured Rafa. Now he's into the quarterfinals here in Monte Carlo, and he's doing it on the clay courts as well. And obviously, this is the most significant clay court result of Taylor Fritz's career. You look for Fritz 24 and 22 overall on clay courts. The only other quarterfinals he had made in. In his career on clay had come at the 250 level the best he had done uh, I suppose at a significant uh, clay court event would have been third round Roland Garros 2020 where he was knocked out by Lorenzo Sonego if you want to say round of 16 Monte Carlo back in 2019 I suppose that's your prerogative give me third round at a slam over a round of 16 at a Masters that said I mean again It's just the success for Taylor Fritz. The weapons, everything we saw manifested itself, his ability to play on his terms on the hard courts, it translated into this match against Sebastian Corda on the clay. You look overall in this match. Each player, what Broken, I want to say, I think there were three breaks of serve. They all came in that—or maybe two breaks of serve, one each in the first set, one for Fritz in the second set. But there were three total breaks of serve in a 7-6, 7-5 victory for Taylor Fritz. He won 82% of his first serve points, 68% of his second serve points, 22 winners against only 11 unforced errors. Now, I will say this again— this was not a clean match. I mean, it was a very clean match in that perspective between Sebastian Corda and Taylor Fritz. If you played first strike, you won the point. And you look for Sebastian Corda; he really only played two bad games. He played a bad tiebreaker for you know the mini break four five. Taylor Fritz connects on a, you know plays a long physical point, and uh, t- to his credit, you know tracks things. Well, I guess I'll get back to the first set tiebreaker breaker momentarily you can leave that in though super producer daniel westoff because i do think that's relevant i want to get back to that first set breaker although that was a testament to taylor fritz sebastian quarter played one bad game in this match it was at five six he's uh five all when he's serving in that second set you know He misses two plus one balls, in particular 1540, the ball he missed to get broken. I mean, Fritz gets his racket on the return, which to his credit court, hit a good serve, and that's what Fritz does with his length, with how – well, he strikes the ball and just how natural that contact point, that feel is for him. He puts a bunch of returns in play. And, you know, Corda got this long, floating, sitting plus one backhand. He was waiting for Fritz to make his move. Fritz guessed cross court, forcing Corda to wait an extra split second longer. Corda misses that backhand in the net. Corda makes that ball 96 out of 100 times. That was one of the four errors at 1540 on set point. But that error was not why he lost the match. It was the three previous errors. He missed a plus one ball at fifteen all, an ill-advised drop shot attempt that ends up in the net at fifteen thirty, which was a credit to Fritz for extending that point physically. But it was a missed drop shot ultimately for Sebastian Corda. And then you know again, Fritz hits one you know one extended rally where he hits a really good backhand deep into the corner that gets Corda frustrated, but uh, and eventually draws an error from Corda. But You know, again, three unforced errors from Sebastian Corda at 5-all. That was the game he wants back. Two of them on plus-one balls, one of them on an ill-advised drop shot. Like, that's the game he wants back more than anything. The breaker that Fritz won, that was a testament to Taylor Fritz. Gets his first mini-break to go up 4-2 by taking a backhand return early on the rise, just getting it deep at the feet of Korda. Draws an error. I wouldn't say unforced. I would call that one a forced error. That's what Taylor Fritz does. He's using his length. He's using his ground strokes to impose his will. Second point, 4-5. They play a long rally that, to Fritz's credit, he looked better as a mover on the clay, was doing a little bit of a better job sliding into his shots, was getting good length, good depth on his ball, good uh, elevation over the net, even when stretched in the outer thirds. He extended a rally at 4-5 against Sebastian Corda, and then, you know, ultimately is able on the run deep in the outer third of on the backhand wing to hit a really good backhand down the line with depth that eventually draws a quarter error. And then at four, six quarter dumps a plus one forehand. All of a sudden Taylor Fritz has himself the first set breaker. Taylor has that sort of confidence. He's going to keep swinging even after giving up the first mini break. Even, you know, despite not gaining much traction in the service games of Corda throughout the course of this match. And, you know, both guys won under 30% of their return points in this one. Taylor Fritz, the confidence he showed on serve, the weaponry—you re- know, again, how many returns he was just able to put in play—he gives himself a shot in every match that he plays now. Because again, those weapons are translating now, uh, in my opinion. Uh, in my opinion, to regardless of surface, and you know, again. He was able to keep pace with Sebastian Corda on serve. He was able to find his opportunities as a returner. I do think he's moving better, even if he still does look a bit uncomfortable moving to the outer thirds, moving laterally on these clay courts. He's not a good mover. He's fine. He's fine. But with his weapons, fine is good enough. And again, you look for Taylor Fritz now since the French Open of last year, 41-18 and 18 overall. That includes quarterfinals or better at Masters events in Indian Wells twice, once a semifinal, once a title final for him a quarterfinal in Paris last year now he does it on the clay courts in Monte Carlo as i mentioned best clay court result of his career to date first quarterfinal clay court result uh, at first masters 1000 clay court quarterfinal i should say of his career as well things everything trending in taylor fritz's direction he's fourth right now fourth in the points race that's what an Indian Wells title will do for you. That's what a quarterfinal in Monte Carlo will do for you as well. A second week at a grand slam Taylor Fritz right now. I mean, again, there's not have a lot of clay court points to defend from last season. He could be heading into Wimbledon either with a shot to be top 10 in the world or straight up. He could be a top 10 seat at the 2022 Wimbledon. That's how good Taylor Fritz has been to date. And, you know, you look for Taylor Fritz. Now, uh, on paper, and by the tennis abstract singles forecast, he's the favorite against Alejandro Davidovich Fokina. Davidovich Fokina, another exceptional win, straight sets for him over David Goffin. Here's the thing for Davidovich Fokina, who I mentioned this earlier in the week. He is now 18-10 and 10 since uh, the tour resumed post-pandemic in clay court matches and uh, at the ATP level. And that includes a quarterfinal in Monte Carlo last year. That includes a run to the quarterfinals of the French Open last year as well, where he freaking beat Casper Root. In five sets. And, you know, obviously he got the three set win over Djokovic to back that up with the straight set victory over David Goffin for him to make 82% of his first serves in this match and just, you know, keep a ton of pressure on David Goffin. Uh, in Gofan's return games because Davidovich Fokina does put so many returns in play. He is so athletic, such a well-rounded skill set, but and shows a little bit of flash. Again, I think there's a little Spider-Man meme to this matchup between gofan and Davidovich Fokina. I think GoFan's a bit more reined in, a bit wiser in his shot selection, at the same time, it was the athleticism, the explosiveness of Davidovich Fokina that won out. And again, some credit to David Goffin. This was his eighth match in about 11 days. He was coming off of the Marrakesh title. You look for Goffin now in the ATP Live rankings, as I mentioned yesterday. He's currently at number 49, which just gets him into the ball game for everything coming up here over this European clay court stretch. That said, with this quarterfinal appearance, Davidovich Fokina backs up some much needed points he got last year. And again, he has French Open quarterfinal points coming up later this season. He still has Rome round of 16 points to defend from last year, Esterol semifinal points to defend from last year. He's got a massive opportunity tomorrow against Taylor Fritz. And just again, given the athleticism, Davidovich, Fokina, how fluid he is as a mover, I think he's going to be able to withstand the first strike of Fritz if he's disciplined and not erratic in the outer thirds, he can get Fritz stretched as well because he has that sort of firepower. Now he's going to need to land a bunch of first serves like he did today because Fritz will devour that Davidovich-Fokina second serve. And there'll be a lot of times when, you know, again, Davidovich-Fokina leaves the ball shorts. Fritz will capitalize on that. Fritz has even more firepower but give me Davidovich Fokina tomorrow, who is the underdog, again, according to the tennis abstract singles forecast, but according to the bookmakers, I'm actually curious about this. Right now in Monte Carlo, who are your underdogs? Let's see. Right now, Taylor Fritz, the slightest of favorites, minus 120 to Davidovich Fokina's minus 105. By the way, right now, Zverev minus 225 to Zinner's, uh, Sinner's plus 180. Hmm. Davidevich Trokina minus 105, or maybe you even like the game spread better. Well, it's plus half a game at minus 120. Now take the money line at that point. I think Davidovic-Fokina earns the victory tomorrow. That said, I keep doubting Taylor Fritz. He keeps proving me wrong. You just think at some point this is going to end. It hasn't. Taylor Fritz is on fire. There's no reason to think it it would end tomorrow, just given the success he has had. But again, that's uh, where things stand. That's your top quarter of the draw. Uh, Again, we were all expecting... like You know, again, the shot is... uh, Or the chaser is Djokovic-Elkarez. The shot is Fritz 1st Davidovich Davidovic-Fokina. And honestly... I'm pretty excited still for Fritz Davidovich of It may not be the sex appeal of djokovic Alcaraz. It's not too bad either, given how well both of those players are playing. But again, with that said, I want to move on, talk about the other uh, matchups we saw on the day. Let's move next now uh, to Grigor Dimitrov, who just quietly has maybe been the most impressive player uh, of this Monte Carlo event. And I know some of you will think in your head, certainly those of you who have been on tennis Twitter will say, well, hasn't Grigor Dimitrov had success in Monte Monte Carlo before. He absolutely has. You look for him. And Monte Carlo, a place where he trains in the offseason. He's made the quarterfinals here in 2013. He made uh, quarterfinals here 2015 as well. I believe one, a yeah, semifinal run for him in 2018. He's always had success at this surface. It's a place he's extraordinarily comfortable. And obviously for any pro player who spends the majority of your life on the road to have the opportunity to play a tournament where you can sleep in your own bed – I mean, imagine for all of you, I some of you listeners, I'm sure, played tournaments competitively. Imagine how different it is when you get to play locally, wake up in your bed, maybe you have an exercise bike, you hop on for 30 minutes, you have your routine, you know where your coffee machine is, you don't have to eat the powdered eggs in the hotel, uh, breakfast, all these different things. That's what Grigor Dimitrov gets this week. That's why he's always been successful in Monte Carlo, but oh my god. God, did he move well against Kasper Ruud in his 6 6 victory today. And you look at the numbers for Grigor, who went 27 of 29 on first serve points, a 93% conversion rate. He found a first forehand just about every single time. And I don't have the exact numbers, but I think on 17 of those 27 first serve points won, he had a first forehand, essentially, for a winner. He makes 23, uh, hits 23 winners against 16 unforced errors. You know, Kasparud only 12 winners against 15 unforced errors. Dimitrov didn't give him anything to work with, and early on Kasparud was doing what anyone would do to Grigor Dimitrov on a clay court. Heavy topspin, elevated topspin, get that ball high on the one-handed backhand of Grigor. It didn't freaking matter. Grigor was everywhere. He was so fluid on that backhand wing. Came up with a couple of ridiculous scoop shots. The on-the-run backhand down-the-line passing shot he hits uh, for uh, to earn the break. His first break in that first set was just stunning. And then, you know, Kasparu you know, tentatively starts attacking the forehand, but Dimitrov was lights out on the forehand. And it's just from a movement perspective, the fluidity we're seeing from Grigor right now. This is when he's at his, you know, most dangerous is when he is this fit, is when he is this confident, because when the feet are there, he's always been able to make all these different shots in the books. He just, again, is... Special athlete. And so I know I ripped on the 1990 to 1995 players in my next gen era rant. But look, Rigor's made two quarterfinals or better at the big four at four of the big events, right? He makes quarterfinals at Indian Wells, now quarterfinals here in Monte Carlo. And as I alluded to in my intro, he's actually been sneaky good at clay courts throughout the course of his career. Now, he's won 60% of his ATP matches, 355 and 236. Svirov's going to pass Dimitrov pretty damn soon uh, in career ATP tour victories. He's 240 and 154 on hard courts. That's a 61% win percentage. He's 77 and 55 on clay. It's 58% win percentage. So again, a 3% difference for him between hard courts and clay. You look at the numbers, he wins 0.1% fewer points overall on clay court matches than he does in hard courts. He's at 51.3% of his total points won on clay, 51.4% on hard courts. Yeah, the hold percentage uh, dips by about 3%. The break percentage, though, jumps by a corresponding 2.5-ish percent. I mean, again, you give him a little bit more time on that backhand wing when he's fit. And moving his best, guy's just a nightmare. And he's so fluid as a mover. God, the flexibility and just the different angles he's found. How well he's served. Again, he lost two points on his first serve in this match. Grigor's playing. I mean, Grigor has played as well as anyone I've seen with my eyes uh, here this week. And again, the numbers suggest it. Uh, This guy can ball. And so you look for Grigor Dimitrov now. Certainly, uh, from a clay court perspective... It's funny, you don't think of him as a traditional clay court guy with success. He's going to take on Hubie Hercats, who according to the Tennis Abstract Singles forecast, he's the favorite over. Dimitrov 55.1% to Hercats is 449 Now according to odds makers, it's Hercats at minus 135 to Grigor Dimitrov's plus 110. I think that's indicative of the serving performance we've seen from Hercats over the past couple of days and... I mean, 7 6, 6 love victory, I believe, over Albert Ramos for Hurkants to advance. Let's see, it was seven six six, uh, seven six six two. excuse me, over Ramos to advance here to the quarterfinals. Dimitrov and Hurkacz have never played. And by the way, Sinner, uh, excuse me, Davidovich, Joaquin and Fritz, one-to-one career head-to-head. I mean, it's a tough matchup for Dimitrov just because big serve after big serve from is going to go into that Dimitrov backhand and to Hubi Herkot's credit, I mean, he won 81% of his first serve points today, but also won 80% of his second serve points. Did not face a break point on clay. Any of you stat nerds out there, and please, 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 if you are listening to this and you want to look this sort of thing up, at AL Gruskin, when was the last time a player did not face a single break point in a clay court match? Because that's what happened to Hoopy Hurkacz today. And in fact, expect that tweet to come from me as soon as I am done recording this podcast again. Hubie was lights out on serve today. He's only been broken twice in this event, saved six of the eight break points that he faced. He That elite sir, you know, he's holding 91.4% of the time this season. That's third amongst top 50 players on the ATP tour, Trails Opelka, Trails Isner. That's it. The 90% club is the elite club. That's, think... Historically, Isners of the world, prime fetters of the world, Berrettinis of the world. The elite servers serve at that rate. That's where Hubi hercots is at. He's moving extraordinarily well. Movement's never been an issue for him on the clay, and I know I mentioned this earlier, so I won't stick with this for too long, but you look for Hubi. You know, again, overall, in terms of his clay court losses of late, you know, last year, French Open, he loses to Botic Van Sculpt. Well, obviously, Botic a top 50 player now. That loss is appreciated in value, It was also a five-set loss. You look for him last year, first-round loss in Rome, ends up losing to Lorenzo Musetti. Obviously, a fantastic clay court player. You know, 2020 uh, Roland Garros, he loses first round to Tennis Sandgren. Not the greatest of losses, but a three set loss, nevertheless. And you look for some of the losses that he's had, you know, three set loss to Zverev on clay, you know, a loss to Novak Djokovic first round at Roland Garros. But again, to draw Djokovic first round, like that is why. That's another first round loss at Roland Garros, but it was to Novak freaking Djokovic. I know his clay court record, 12 and 16 overall. Is not appealing, but there's more clay court potential uh, for Hoopy hercotts that remains untapped. And again, he, if he's going to serve this well, he should be the favorite because I don't care about the surface. A, a big serve will forever be Grigor Dimitrov's matchup, Achilles' heel. Again, Dimitrov, a 55.1% favorite according to the tennis abstract singles forecast. Herkat's a uh, minus 135 favorite according to odds makers. A fun one folks. Buckle your seatbelts. Let's have some fun. And then of course your final section of the draw Stefano Cecchinato Pass straight set victory for the number 3 seed. He got tested though against Laslo Gere uh, ultimately though CC Pass able to advance in straight sets 7-5 seven, 7-6. Seven, he now is going to take on Diego Schwartzman. Schwartzman 3 set victory was a set and a breakdown ultimately though 2-6 6-4 6-3 over Lorenzo Musetti. I mean, Schwartzman Tsitsipas at the ATP Cup was one of the most fun matches I think we've had here in 2022, and Schwartzman, a two-to-one career, had to have an advantage over Tsitsipas. I mean, other than a brief blip at the start of last season uh, on the clay where he lost, you know, three straight matches to Karatsev, Faa, and Gasquet. Although obviously the Karatsev match, I think, has aged well in value—a three-set loss there. The Faa Gasquet won certainly head stretchers, as was his Davis Cup loss on the clay. But he's 19-9 over his last 52 weeks as Diego Schwartzman on the clay courts, and obviously made quarterfinals Roland Garros last year before getting knocked out by Rafa. I mean, Schwartzman just fights. He scraps. He claws. And, you know, as predicted on yesterday's podcast, I said the over under was what, 12 and a half, 13 and a half breaks of serve in this match? There were 18 plus nine is 27 total games. There were 15 breaks of serve. 27 total games, 15 breaks of serve. Come on. That's a good call. Hey, great shot to this podcast. It was athletic, it was extraordinary, it was physical. The passing shots were immense. I mean, again, the issue for – uh, Lorenzo Musetti in this match, he just didn't have ways to create free points for himself. And as relentless as he is physically, he's just not quite on that Schwartzman level yet, which makes sense because Schwartzman, you know, right now I believe Diego Schwartzman, I want to say, thirty years old on the head, uh, twenty nine turns thirty this year. Like that's a guy in his physical prime. I actually don't think Schwartzman's a horrible comparison for Musetti moving forward in terms of the sort of player he can aspire to be when he locks in physically and just gets to another level from a strength perspective. But finding ways to win free points for himself will define his ceiling because if he can start to win free – winning free points, all the shots are there. The athleticism is there. uh, The creativity is there. The flair for the dramatic is there. Uh, Again – Really fun three-set match. Probably actually my favorite match to watch on the day. Sina Rublev is going to come up second. I-, I lied to all of you because that match was just so athletic between Schwartzman and Musetti. But again, ultimately, Schwartzman three-set victory to set up the matchup with Stefano Tsitsipas. Stefano Tsitsipas, according to the tennis abstract singles forecast, a 66.4% favorite. So again, like a two-thirds favorite, you look. According to Oddsmakers, Tsitsipas minus 265 favorite over Schwartzman's plus 205 with how well Ciccio Pass is striking the ball, and again he got his text, test physically against Laszlo Gür. Uh Again, this has been his best surface of his career for Stefano Ciccio Pass. You know, markedly so, remarkably so, uh, not remarkably so, but significantly so. I don't expect that trend to uh, to end anytime soon. These are all good quarterfinal matches. Sinner uh, again. Taking on Zverev, Fritz, taking on Davidovich, Fokina, Dimitrov, Hercats. Two guys you're just unsure about their clay court form. And then Tsitsipas, Schwartzman. Monte Carlo delivers the goods. The quarterfinals are set. We're ready to rock and roll. And of course, we'll continue to cover it all here on our Crack Rackets mini break podcast as we want to keep you all the most well-informed, best-educated fans in the business. Of course, if you've missed out on anything, you can catch up on it all here or on our website, CrackRackets.com. If you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at AL Gruskin. A shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of this content and possible. Shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 with all of that said for my fantastic super producer, Daniel Westhoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. We'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.